Citizen Dame, uh, the first episode of 2023. Yay! I am your wonderful host, Lauren Humphreys Brooks. And with me, as always, is Karen Peterson. Party on, Karen. Party on, Garth. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, you are wonderful. You were correct in your introduction of yourself. I am wonderful. Did I say that I was wonderful? I am. You did. You said I'm the wonderful Lauren. I'm the wonderful Lauren. I am. It's true. You are. (laughs) Own it. And you and you are wonderful as well, Karen. Oh, thank you. Uh, so we're gonna get going on this very exciting episode. I'm excited about it because this is one of my favorite um genres of film and fiction. So I'm excited. But Mm -hmm. first, how are you, Karen? It has been a little while. This is our first episode of 2023. Um, are we all like rested after New Year's, etc.? I am never rested and it gets worse <laughs> all the time. So, you know, this is, this is fine. It's fine. <laughs> Sorry. No, I'm... I just, I haven't been at my own house in like, other than two nights in the last three weeks. And so that means I haven't slept in my own bed. I, you know, it's just, life is just different when you don't get your own space. So, yeah. Yeah, I understand that. Yeah, I I just drove back to New York City yesterday and um, I love my parents. I, you know, they still live in the house that I I spent uh, most of my childhood in. Um, I I love my hometown. I'm so glad to be back in my own apartment. I'm so glad to be back in like my my own bed and like, oh, this is my space now. This is not someone else's space. Um, but yeah, I've, I've had a good vacation. I, I am actually quite excited about 2023 and getting, getting going on, um, some fun episodes and stuff to talk about. Yeah, it's going to be good. So, uh, so for this episode, we wanted to talk about, as I said, one of my favorite film and, uh, novel genres, which is the whodunit. And the whodunit is the detective story, right? But it is it is a very specific kind of detective story for those who do not, who are not aware of this. Um, and I think it's easier to say that that the whodunit is is like the kind of books that Agatha Christie and Dorothy Sayers and Josephine Tay and like J.K. Chesterton wrote. So the usually a story that involves a central detective um, who investigates a murder typically every once in a while you get like a jewel robbery or something but usually there's a murder um everybody is a suspect everybody has a motive for committing the crime and it's up to the detective and the viewer or the reader to figure out who did it uh and of course there are a lot of versions of this genre there are a lot of um subversions of the genre so we're going to talk a bit about um, a couple of films that i think are really good representations of this this genre on film um to give a warning to our listeners the three films that we are talking about today specifically and in detail 
will be and then there were none from 1945 the last of sheila for uh from 1973 and clue from 1985 we are going to spoil these films so we're gonna probably talk about who the killer or killers are um how uh, like all of the twists and turns proceed things like that so just to warn you if you've not seen any of these films or if there's one that you haven't seen definitely skip over that one <laughs> um if you don't want to be spoiled if you do if you're okay with that i will say that all of these films are films that i've seen multiple times now and i still enjoy them and i like what they do i think that they're their their quality as films are really are really excellent because you can watch them multiple times knowing the solution to the mystery um and still enjoy them so yeah. you don't want to be spoiled skip it yeah well and that's the thing about a, a really well done well written movie is that um the the twists the surprises like if your entire experience watching it hinges on that surprise then it doesn't have rewatchability and it's not actually a very good movie um yeah and if you can watch it over and over like okay so this was the first time I'd seen and then there were none I'd seen the last of Sheila before and I've seen Clue a million times starting when I was a kid and um with Clue the funny thing about that is because of the the way that that ends and we'll talk about that when we get there but um I always forget who the murderer is <laughs> Well, I always forget every time I'm watching it. It's like a brand new movie. <laughs> <laughs> because because there's a reason for that. Yes. <laughs> no, I mean, and and yeah, we're we're gonna talk about clues kind of the the um one of the pinnacles, I think, of the development of the whodunit, um, particularly in, in Hollywood, right? Mm -hmm. But but yeah, and and even when you come to something like and then there were none, and um I've read a lot of Agatha Christie books. When I first read and then there were none, I'd already seen multiple film adaptations of it. So I knew who the killer was um i knew like kind of everything that happened and a, a lot of the twists and turns and these films sometimes change those things they switch them around we're going to talk about that but it's the fact that even though i'm aware of like the solution right i can still enjoy it and i still find a great deal of pleasure and and, and it's true with, with agatha christie books generally i will you know i've seen most of the poirot mysteries from um uh, the david suchet poirot mysteries from i think it's itv uh, so there are a lot of Agatha Christie mysteries that I already know the solution to before I've ever read the book, but I still like reading them because her writing and the way that she actually plots things is really good. In fact, there are times where I'm like, am I misremembering the, the, the murderer? Because I'm pretty positive it's that guy, but maybe it's that guy. <laughs> so, so yeah, I absolutely agree that the, uh, the, the mark of a good film, and I think the mark even of a good mystery is you can know the solution and still enjoy rewatching it rereading it and experiencing uh, experiencing it again yeah because well especially with this type of genre mm -hmm. the movie it's not even all necessarily about the actual solution of the murder it's yeah. about the characters because you're you're generally in like a single location or you know otherwise you you know some way you have everybody kind of forced together um for a time and you spend all this time with these people and so you have you don't have to like them but you have to be compelled enough to keep watching them and to be invested in in what happens and to to care if someone gets bumped off in the middle of it you know mm -hmm. um whether that's to cheer or to be like oh no this totally took a turn you know um and that's what makes these so fun for me is is generally it's the characters 
Yeah, and and I think that it's something that very often whodunits get short shrift on that, that because because it, they rely so much on tropes mm-hmm. um, and character types. And we talked about this a bit in our in our mini episode about um, about Glass Onion, where you set up these characters who are like, you know, so let, let's start with and then there were none. Um, the alcoholic doctor. Right. Right. The um, the 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 cold unfeeling spinster that kind of thing so you've got these character tropes that are pretty recognizable we know them you know we've seen them in movies and in plays etc and they've been around for a very long time but one of the things that i think whodunits good whodunits do really well is actually to dig into those tropes and to as we talked about with glass onion to reveal the actual human beings that are within them Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that Christy is is surprisingly very good at this. She she tends to get again short shrift for her character development, but so much of her books really are about um, the psychology of the people involved. Yeah, uh, and about who is capable of murder, not just um, what would someone have a motive for murder or would someone have an opportunity for murder, but who would be capable of of doing it? Because you can have motive and opportunity and never actually commit murder. Right. Um, yeah. And and that's something that I think Christie and, and Sayers and Tay really exploit a great deal in their books. And that's why their books have continued to survive for as long as they had, because it's not just about who did it. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Um, so the, the word whodunit was actually uh, coined by a book reviewer named Donald Gordon in 1930. And it was specifically to... Um, apply to these kinds of stories so so to this golden age of detective fiction which is um the 1920s and the 1930s usually it's set between the first and second world wars is the development of the detective novel uh and and as we said people like agatha christie jk chesterton um dorothy sayers ellery queen rex stout like um if you've read any of their books you know what a whodunit looks like uh and but within that, you know, you you get almost immediately this this element of humor that runs through a lot of these. So this whole idea of like everybody gets together at a country house and there's a murder and everyone is a suspect. Right. It's always the most unlikable character in um, uh, in in the, the story is the one who gets killed because everybody has to have a motive for wanting them dead. Um, and then you get this, so there, there is this like leaning into those kinds of cliches that we know what's going to happen. We know the structure. Uh, and the good whodunits are the ones that either use that structure and kind of push it as far as it can go or actually wind up subverting it. Um, so in 1945, uh, for our first film, the Renee, uh, Renee Claire actually adapted Agatha Christie's 1939 novel, um, and then there were none. Before we get going on this, there, there are two different, three different maybe titles for And Then There Were None, both of which are offensive. <laughs> the original title is incredibly offensive. Yeah. I, I invite people to actually look it up, but it's based in this um, children's nursery rhyme minstrel poem, basically. Uh, and so, and very often the, the, both the film adaptations and um, later books change the the both the rhyme and the um the the title of the novel so just to 
just to let everybody know about that. But I think that it, it definitely reveals one of the issues that lies at the heart of particularly Christie's work, but a lot of whodunits is that these books were written in the 1920s and 30s. There's a lot of racism. There's a lot of ethnocentrism. There's a lot of sexism running through them. Um, you know, Agatha Christie is a fantastic writer. She was not a particularly progressive person. Um, and, and so I think that that's something that then gets, you know, played with and subverted in, a, in great measure in later film adaptations and in just later films. We talked about um, Knives Out and Glass Onion, how Ryan Johnson is taking some of these elements and subverting them, changing them, and making a comment about them as well. Um, but so to start with, and then there were none, this is about a group of people who are all strangers to each other. They all get invited to go on vacation at this isolated island. Um, they think they're being invited by this one person, by uh, Mr. and Mrs. Owen. And um, it turns out basically that no one actually knows these people. None of them are aware of their actual hosts. And it's revealed over the course of basically one night that all of the people who've been invited there are um, guilty of murder, according to their unseen hosts. Yeah. And so in watching this, this was the first time you watched it. What did you think of this film? Um, okay, so I will say overall, and it could have just partly been the transfer I was watching. I was watching this on Canopy. Um, it felt very dated. And that was oh, yeah. them thematically, it was the way that it's it's shot, the way that it's even edited. Like there are so many things about this that felt very, very dated. But when I was able to look past that, um, I found this to be a, an entertaining story. And it was one where I was just like, I bet I would really love to read this book. So I'm going to read it. <laughs> Uh, I hope I don't spoil the book for you. Oh, please. It's fine. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I like this, but I think that it's, it's symptomatic of one of the issues with these kinds of films. Agatha Christie's book is actually very dark, mm -hmm. um, far darker than, than this film. But one of the things I actually like about this one is that it, it you know, I mentioned that edge of comedy it yeah. kind of leans into that comedy. There's almost, even in 1945, and you know, Christie's still writing. She, she's, she continued to publish books until like 1974. Um, even in 1945, there's an understanding of these kinds of setups, right? As being inherently humorous at some level. And right. that part of it is, is literally the fun that the viewer is having and that the characters are having. And we're going to get together all of these people and there's going to be a murder and we're going to have to solve the murder. Mm -hmm. um, and and this one is particularly interesting, I think, because it kind of it kind of presages the uh, the films that will then get made in in later years, where you get some of the biggest actors and character actors of the day, get them all together and put them in a whodunit. Yeah. yeah. Um, so in this in this film alone, and you know, some people might not be aware of who these people are, but but you will recognize them if you've watched any like 1930s, 1940s films, you will recognize all of these people. Walter Houston is an is the father of John Houston, the grandfather of Angelica Houston. Mm -hmm. um, Barry Fitzgerald, who is uh, an, an Irish actor who plays like Irish caricatures most of the time. Um, Misha Auer, uh, C. Aubrey Smith, Judith Anderson, who's most famous for being Mrs. Danvers, um, uh, Richard Hayden, who did all kinds of voices for particularly for Disney films. But again, all of these really 
great character actors and a lot of them known for comedy. Like Barry right. Fitzgerald, uh, Misha Auer, Richard Hayden are all known for being comedic actors. That's their primary mode, right? And so you get with this particular film, a lot of humor, you get characters talking to the camera, um, introducing themselves saying like, by the way, here's what I did. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then and then you get this development of this this mystery. And I do think that there are moments when it gets quite creepy where it becomes very twisty and confusing because you're trying to keep track of who is where when right and and then there's moments where like once someone puts together that hey wait nothing happens when there are three people in a room together only when there are two um or someone's by themselves so let's you know let's stick in groups basically and then the second someone kind of wanders off it's like oh no what's going to happen to that person and it becomes a little bit like you worry for them um yeah yeah, but oh sorry no go on i was just going to back up a little bit to the to the characters i think that um that was again coming back to to what i was saying about what what compels me about these movies but one thing that i think is interesting is that in in um like in more recent ones with Brian Johnson's films, for example, um, you're bringing together people who know each other. In the case of Knives Out, they're all family. In the case of Glass Onion, they've all been friends for years. Um, but what's what's fun about this, and we actually see this later in Clue as well, is these are people who don't know each other and they don't even know their host. And yet they're like, sure, I'm going to get on a boat and come to this island. Why not? Um, which is something that I don't, I don't know how that would work today. Like what would be the compelling reason that someone, you'd have to probably tell them they won a contest or something, you know, cause why yeah. would you get on a boat by yourself to go to someplace you don't know to meet someone you don't know? Well, but I, I think that that would be the, the modern equivalent would be, oh, you're a contest winner. You've won this vacation. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then everybody gets together and at the point, and basically by the time all of these people discover that first of all, there, there are a lot of assumptions made, but by the right. time all these people discover that they not only don't know each other, no one knows their own hosts um, and realize that they've actually been decoyed to this island for a purpose. Uh, you know, there's no way that they can leave, right? Right, the, they've been, stuck because yeah. the boat can't come until Monday. <laughs> yeah, they, they've been completely cut off and it's a great kind of setup for this creepy mystery where and and one of the things i do think that this film does very well is even though we've got this sort of start that is very humorous right there's a lot of jokes there's a lot of kind of mugging and playing around as it goes on you begin to see the cracks and the characters developing this increasing mistrust of each other as the bodies pile up right Um, As the bodies pile up, as the tension really starts to build, because they're realizing they are completely trapped, completely cut off. There's no way to even contact the mainland. The boat comes twice a week and that's it. And there's nothing they can do. And then, you know, and and then, yeah, and then bodies start piling up and and everybody who knows that they're innocent, they worry that they're going to be next. Yeah, and and they're like, well, I'm innocent, so but you could be the killer, or you could be saying that you're innocent, but actually you're, you're the killer. Or there could be the the other element is that there could be a hidden killer, right? Um, that there's someone who is hidden on the island and is is the one that is committing these murders. Meanwhile, which is also- where it starts, because yeah. since they don't know the host, they assume that the host is there somewhere, 
And it takes a bit before anybody starts to think, wait a second, one of you might be the host pretending to be somebody yeah, else. Yeah, and, and they're also all aware, at least according to the their, their plated recording in which they're basically accused of murders. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're all also aware that it could be, although they're not 100% certain that everyone in, that everyone on that island are capable of murder, right. um, have, have killed someone in one yeah. way or another. Well, and what's interesting about that is some of them are not straight up murder. Some of them definitely are, you know, um, but some of them are, are really more of like manslaughter. Not that that makes it okay, but I, I just think it's yeah. interesting because it's very much, a, it's a, it's a whole, it's a whole array of, of types of, of murders, I guess. Yeah, and... it, it's sometimes it's just murder by omission. So you, you've got the characters who um, killed someone, but did it by not telling something that they knew or did it by lying on the stand. And yeah, and so like then that. someone goes to prison and then yeah. dies in prison. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you get this development of like the justifications, just like, well, yes, I did it, but right. Mm-hmm. Yes, I caused this, this man's death, but it was my job, you know, th- things like that. Um, which is the whole point because for when we do get to the reveal of who the killer is and we'll talk about the buildup of that i'm assuming in a second but um like there's actually i i suspected one person the whole time until uh they died quote unquote um (laughs) and then i was like oh so then it must be this person because someone says the person who's behind this is very concerned with justice and um so that's what i think is so so like such a fun detail about all these characters and all the things that they're guilty of is even if it wasn't something that they intended or knew would happen um they still basically they caused the death of somebody and they got away with it and so this this Mm -hmm. murderer is just like no what you did was wrong and you're going to pay for it yeah well, all right. So let's talk about the solution as it is presented in, in this film, which is that the judge played by mm-hmm. Barry Fitzgerald um, has been the one to set all of this up. Yes. And and yeah, and he fakes his own death at one point with the help of Dr. Armstrong, who is um, played by Walter Houston. And and yeah, it's it's one of those that I think it's very effective because it is it, it does rely on this whole thing, just like, oh, it's definitely the judge. And then the judge dies, just like, oh, it's not the judge. Mm-hmm. Okay, so who else could it possibly be? And so it, it maintains that tension, right? Right up until the end. And then it's revealed that actually the judge is not dead. Um, and and I, I think that, that it's something that this film actually does really well. I remember the first time that I'd seen it where before I read the book, actually, I did not, I, I was like you, I, I was like, oh, it's the judge. And then he dies away. Like, okay. It's not the judge. Right. Um, <laughs> and, and there's like, well, who else could it possibly be? And then, and then you get the reveal at the end. Yeah. But so when, when you, find, when you think that it can't be the judge, cause he's dead, who did you then think it was? Uh, I thought it was Dr. Armstrong. Okay. For me, uh, I thought yeah. it was um I thought it was Miss Claythorne. And one of the reasons was because it was like when they were all confessing their crimes yeah. to the camera, she was the only one who didn't. She, like she refused. <laughs> and I was just like, ah, yeah. she's yeah. So anyway. 
Well, and so here's here's where I think that that this film in particular gets kind of caught up in some issues that have nothing to do with the quality of the film itself, but have everything to do with Hollywood at the time. Yeah. Um, this is a film made in 1945. I'm going to spoil the book here. In the book, everybody com- has committed a murder. Everyone is guilty and everyone dies. Um, yeah. So... So what is revealed at the end is that the judge, the judge is the one who has set all of this up, but Miss Claythorne is in fact a, a killer. She, she kills herself at the end. Um, all, so what, but what the film does is it kind of gives us the, the two young lovers going off together, right? Who are not actually murderers. Mm-hmm. And one of, one of the issues that the film has kind of worked itself into is that you've got all of these tropes, but you also have no hero. This is a story without a hero. There's no one really to root for. Everybody is a criminal. Um, and so it kind of tacks on this, well, actually these two are not criminals. <laughs> Right. Um, because you also can't have murderers getting away with it. So we can't have a justified murder. We can't have them being like, well, yes, I did it, but here is why. Um, so they can't walk off together at the end without having been in some way exonerated of, of murder. Right. Um, and so it, it's an interesting issue, I think, with with films, with these kinds of whodunits made in this period, because there are certain rules that they basically have to abide by that the books didn't, right? Christie could actually write a book where everybody is a killer, everybody did it. Mm-hmm. Um, same thing with you know, Murder on the Orient Express. Right. Uh, spoiler for that. Um, <laughs> but, but the films can't do that. And that's something that thankfully, you know, and, and again, it's not the fault of the films themselves, um, but thankfully in the, in the 1970s, when you begin to get more of these big whodunit adaptations, you actually can have murderers getting away with it. You can have solutions that are not, you know, 100% ab- law abiding, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. So I, I think that, and then there were none. I definitely agree with you in terms of um, the, the it's, a, it's a little hokey. It's a little strange. I do think that it kind of builds on this element of humor and um and the all of the tropey elements the creepiness of being trapped in a house with a whole bunch of people that may or may not be murderers mm-hmm. um and and i i do think it does a good job with that while at the same time being you know very much a 1945 film much more kind of staid and straightforward in a lot of ways than than some of the later films that we're going to talk about yeah it was fun i know everyone's been talking about the last of sheila being such a huge influence for glass on in and it clearly is but it was fun also to look at this and see some of the ways that that this film influenced glass onion as well you know well the whole everybody get together in a house on an island yeah uh, Mm -hmm. honestly when i first saw glass onion um (laughs) i thought halfway through i was just like are we just doing and then there were none because is that it like is that what we're gonna do and then it didn't thankfully right but yeah but but johnson is definitely playing with that yeah and that's the fun of ryan johnson is he's clearly such a fan of and so knowledgeable of this genre that he's able to kind of mix and match and pull from things without just completely duplicating it yeah absolutely um, and, and to play with, you know, the, all of those elements that are part of the whodunit trope, we recognize this, just like everybody comes to a country house, everybody comes to an island, everybody's on a train, mm-hmm. um, there's a murder, everyone could have done this. <laughs> exactly. 
Um, so let's talk about uh, The Last of Sheila, which I, I had the pleasure of rewatching last night. Um, so The Last of Sheila is a 1973 film, so we're jumping ahead about 30 years. Um, directed by Herbert Ross and written by, this is fantastic, I love, the, <laughs> I love this fact, Anthony Perkins and Stephen Sondheim. Mm-hmm. Which is a great team <laughs> and completely unexpected. The first time I saw this film, I was like, who in the what? <laughs> what? Okay. Um, and and again, a number of, at, particularly at that time, very well-known, well-loved stars. So it stars Richard uh, Benjamin, Diane Cannon, James Coburn, Joan Hackett, James Mason, Ian McShane, and Raquel Welch. So you've got an interesting kind of mix of people. Um, all, all of whom were very well known and uh, and and very famous at the time as well. Even though I think we don't know Richard Benjamin as well as as some of the others now. Right. Um, and so the the whole story it begins with um, the hit and run murder of Sheila Green, who's the wife of uh, Clinton Green, played by James Coburn. And we see her killed. We don't know who did it. Uh, and the car the car drives away. Then fast forward several years. Um, I think it's just one year. Is it just one year? Yeah. For some reason, I thought it was longer. But I so, thought it was supposed to be like on the anniversary of Sheila's death. Yeah, that Something sounds like that. right. Yeah. So, so we we fast forward, and um, Clinton Green it has invited a group of people, all of these different people um, who are at the party, except for one. Uh, on the night that, that Sheila was killed, he invites all of them to for a luxury cruise on his yacht, which he also then reveals to be a, um, a game, a mystery game. And he gives each of them a card that has a, a quote secret on it. And he's planned this like elaborate, basically scavenger hunt for them to figure out who has what card. And as the story goes on, it becomes clear and clear that all of the secret cards, which he has said are made up, are actually not made up and they actually apply to everybody on the boat. Mm -hmm. um, more bodies turn up, uh, all of that. So this, it, this is very much a, um, a, similar, a similar setup in terms of a whodunit, right? We've got this group of people. This, this is uh, much like um, Glass Onion. These are people that know each other, right? right? And they all have this actually very long history together. Um, and so they have a great deal of knowledge of one another and a lot of animosity, <laughs> mm -hmm. which gets revealed as the story goes on because much like, again, much like Glass Onion, um, Initially, you're like, oh, hi, how are you? Isn't it wonderful to see you? Isn't this great? <laughs> and then it becomes clearer and clearer that these people like kind of like each other, but also really hate each other at the same time. Right. Um, and definitely all have different reasons for being, being on the boat to begin with. Uh, Clinton is eventually murdered. When it, and it becomes clear that, you know, he's actually brought these people together to kind of try to uncover, supposedly, um, who was the murderer of his wife. Um, so what are your thoughts? Uh, I'm going to let you go on this. Um, what are your thoughts on this film as, as a whodunit, as like a piece of 1973, I don't know, <laughs> camp? <laughs> it's very yeah, campy. Uh, it is very campy. And it's funny because so I first saw this movie last year. They put it on TCM after Stephen Sondheim passed away. And because this is one that had been on my list forever, but it was always it was always hard to track down. And now it's much easier, um, I think, because of people like 
Ryan Johnson. <laughs> um, it's kind of become a film that people are like, we need to, you know, we need to see this. So, um, so I finally watched it for the first time last year and that was one of my, it was, it was fun. It's entertaining, but that was one of my big things was like, oh my gosh, this is so campy. Like the one image that I kept remembering over and over when, whenever I would think about this movie is, um, um, James Coburn, who is Clinton, the main the guy that brings everyone together um him sitting at a typewriter with like his his turtleneck and just like laughing at his own like cleverness and hubris as he's typing up these cards and like writing out this mm-hmm. game and it just was so like so silly <laughs> that i was just like i don't know it just it was one of those things where it was just like this movie is is fun but it's very silly and it um, is. I think that's why I like it. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. I, I think that, again, you know, we're talking whodunits have often been referred to as a comedy genre almost, mm-hmm. um, partially because of like all of these tropes and everything, but also the fact that it's just like, yeah, this is this is silly. And this this whole this um, film is based on a game. Right. The whole right. idea is that we're going to get everybody together. We're going to play a game, but it becomes more and more serious when you realize that the game is much more sinister than you thought it was. Mm-hmm. Um, all of the secrets are true. It's again, the, the, that, and then there were none element of everybody having a secret, everybody having a, a motive, right? Um, right. To, to kill Clinton, but also to conceal their secret from the other people on board and from the public at large. It's also very much playing within the Hollywood, within like the Hollywood world. And in fact, um, there's a whole discussion about like, who are the different characters based on uh, um, that, that, you know, who are these people that Stephen Sondheim and Tony Perkins knew (laughs) that they're basing these characters on. Um, And, and I mean, even, uh, even James Mason, you know, says the, said that, you know, he's playing this, he's playing a film director who's supposed to be based on two real life directors. And, but Mason says, I'm playing it as everybody's idea of James Mason. Right? <laughs> so you've got these layers, I think, to, especially to people like James Mason or um, Raquel Welch, who are playing almost versions of themselves. Um, or the way that the public perceives them. And I think it's very funny when it's revealed like <laughs> what James Mason's um, secret is, right? Which is disturbing on the one hand. And on the other hand, you're just like, well, of course he's James Mason. He's the most <laughs> famous, he played the most famous child molester in the world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is disturbing, but also it makes perfect sense. <laughs> um, so yeah, it, it's incredibly campy and it does kind of, lean into again that that um the the inherent queerness i think of of a lot of whodunits is that it's extreme it's silly no one ever gets together on a boat on a luxury boat and commits murder that's not what happens you don't have these none of this is real to life but at the same time it does have real um real characters people that you understand their motivations and you do sympathize with them like None of these people are particularly likable, but I really enjoyed watching them. And I think that that's what, uh, what a film like that relies on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think that the setup of this is done really, really well, where like, if you replay the opening scene where Sheila actually gets murdered, if you just watch it over and over again, there are no real clues as to who the, like the identity of the person you cannot tell 
if it's a man or a woman, you can't tell like, you know, even what shoes are wearing, you don't see anything about this person. And I think that that is, is so fun because you can convince yourself um, that you saw certain clues, but they're not there. Yeah, no, I love that. And, and even when it's revealed who killed Sheila, which actually isn't the whole point of, of the murders, right? Right. Um, when it, even it's, when it's revealed who killed Sheila, I honestly, I was like, no, that can't be right. That can't be true. Like there's gotta be something else going on. And there is, it's just not what we think it is. And I, I, I actually think that the reveal, so so the revelation again, spoiler warning for everybody. Um, the, the revelation is that basically the, um, the wife of a screenwriter is played by, uh, Joan, Joan Hackett, right. Um, is an alcoholic. And mm-hmm. she drove, and it, none of this was malice aforethought, basically. She drove to the party. She was not at the party. She decided to go to the party. She drove there and she hit Sheila and right. was terrified, realized what she had done, drove away and concealed her crime. Um, and, and that information is revealed to us about an hour and a half into the film and there's still 20 minutes left. Mm-hmm. so you're like okay so there's got to be something else right and and what happens is she commits she apparently commits suicide uh and and then there's this question of like is that what happened like is that the solution to who murdered sheila and what does that mean about who murdered clinton and um and why right what is does what does that mean exactly and it's very clever and very nasty i think the way that the 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 actual killer is revealed right oh i was just gonna say because one of the things that's a fun fun detail that you don't really know unless you're at least i never picked up on it um was that the secrets all spell out sheila yeah exactly it's Mm -hmm. it's at at the end and uh and so the james mason character figures this out basically (laughs) um And it's hilarious because uh, this this is one of those movies where there's not a central detective. There's no one investigating anything, right. um, except for the the Richard Benjamin character, who's a, a screenwriter, and James Mason, who is a washed up film director. And both of them are kind of working in tandem with each other, very similar to um, uh, the Judge and Doctor Armstrong in uh, And Then There Were None. Mm-hmm. And and then the the mason character begins to figure it out right it's just like okay so here's here's what happened and then he realizes um something that clinton says very early on in the film which is that you would not you don't have to leave here if you're smart enough to figure out who you know all the secrets belong to if you're smart enough he's like if you're smart enough well he's got this picture (laughs) um of each person and what like their assigned secret was underneath Sheila. And so it spells out. So the, the first letter of each word spells out Sheila. It's actually very simplistic, right. but also very clever because no one would necessarily think to look there, right? Exactly. Um, and that's that's how the, the Mason character kind of finally puzzles out that actually this, you know, this doesn't work. This doesn't make sense. Clinton planned all of this and then he changed something. Uh, and, and it's eventually revealed that uh, the Richard Benjamin character is the one who murdered Clinton actually, and also murdered his wife. Um, and it's, again, it's one of those where, you know, Mason even says just like, oh, isn't it clever? The, the, the detective is the murderer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that makes perfect sense. You revealed everything. Yep. <laughs> yeah, this, this really is such a, such a fun um such a fun movie 
it's such a fun mystery part of the reason is because of the fact that it takes a bit for the characters to catch on like you were saying like they don't there's not a central detective um but it also takes a bit for them to even catch on that there's something they need to be investigating other than the fact that they're just trying to solve this puzzle to you know to play this game because this is clinton's big thing is that he uh, he's a game guy and even when you see his study you see like just a whole lot of different parlor games and things strewn about and this is just what he does so it's it, so they don't even really put it together that there's something um to actually solve like that that anything really bad is going on um other than their only clue is when when um um the uh, who is it the first one who realizes like wait a second i think these secrets are all real so yeah it becomes clearer as the game goes on mm-hmm. that each of the secrets actually applies to to one of the characters right um but i mean it's even a subversion in some ways of of or a, a misdirection for the audience because we are conditioned by the beginning of the film um and by the title of it and and the the name of the yacht etc that this is act that in some way this actually involves Sheila's murder. Mm-hmm. And what we learn really is that the game itself doesn't, right? That's not something that Clinton was planning, particularly. Right. Um, it's not about Sheila's murder. Um, but it is. <laughs> and that, and mm-hmm. that's what it becomes about. So the next series of murders. So there's a lot of misdirection going on in the film. Um, that is very much in keeping with the whodunit genre, but also subverting it, saying like, you know, we're going to, um, and and also being able to talk about it in a more explicit way. So this this film can talk about things like homosexuality and child molestation, right? And make that a part of the story and not have to worry about things like the code because this is 1973. Right. Uh, so any final thoughts on the last of Sheila before we move on to, I think probably my favorite of these three films. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't really have anything else to to add on this. Um, it is interesting because I, I've seen some things saying that this movie was really well received when it was first released. And I don't think that that is true because I've also seen other, other things that it took a bit for this to really become embraced. And I think that this is a movie that has definitely gotten new life in the last year, partly because it's that, wait a second, Sondheim co-wrote this? And it's, I think, the only film that Sondheim wrote. Um, and uh, anyway, so it's, it's I'm glad that it's getting new life for sure. Um, my, my understanding is that it was initially well-received. So like it got good reviews, it got good kind of critical response. Um, but then sort of fell out of favor in a lot of ways that people didn't want rewatch it, right? That it, it didn't mm. become one of those staples. Whereas films like the um, Murder on the Orient Express, which is made, I, I think the same year, 73, um, with, with Albert Finney and, and Tony Perkins um, <laughs> and like everybody in Hollywood at that time. Yeah. Um, or, or some of the Peter Ustinoff Poirot mysteries, uh, that they that those films were um uh were became more popular and became better known and became sort of staples whereas the last of sheila kind of fell off in a lot of ways murder on the orient express was actually the next year and i think it got nominated for uh, i know it won one oscar for um supporting actress i think it got nominated for like six it's amazing. Something, something crazy like that. 
I mean, it's it's a fantastic film. Very campy, actually, very similar oh, to the yeah. Test of Sheila. <laughs> um, a lot of the 1970s whodunits, which are so good and so entertaining, but are also very silly and campy and very much lean into. So, you know, talking about this this film as, as being composites of different characters or, or of different um, real life people, actors basically playing versions of themselves, things like that. You get that a lot in, in these 1970s adaptations um, of... You know, it's like you're you're leaning into the the characterization or the public persona of the actor playing them. Uh, one of my favorites is I think it's a, a little bit later. It's the 1980s um, Evil Under the Sun, uh, which has among a whole bunch of other people, it's got Rodney McDowell, um, <laughs> but also has Diana Rigg and Maggie Smith as two actresses who hate each other. <laughs> like violently and are constantly trying to one up each other and like at one point sing a song together that basically turns into a cat fight it's it's very funny but it's like leaning into those kind of personas of the uh the superior actress figure right <laughs> nice um I, I will say Perkins and Sondheim did collaborate on two other projects that never were um, were realized. So it's it's unfortunate, but apparently there are two other films that they wanted to mm. get made and the, that didn't wind up getting made. Um, it's the Chorus Girl Murder Case and Crime and Variations. Hmm. Uh, wish you'd done it, guys. I know. <laughs> Do those screenplays still exist? I bet someone could produce it. If they if they still exist or if they're in any like format, I really hope that someone does. <laughs> that would be great. Um, so our final film, I think, is a film that most people have seen. Certainly, most people my age have seen it. Oh yeah. Um, if you haven't seen this movie, I'm sad for you. And yeah, go fix that immediately. Or, or if you don't like this movie, I'm really sad for you. Really um, sad, yeah. So finally, let's let's talk about Clue. Karen, what do you think of Clue? This is a 1985 film. Again, one of those big cast, well-known people, but all of them comedians also. Mm -hmm. um, very, very funny. It was, uh, it was directed by Jonathan Lynn, who co-wrote the script with John Landis. We don't like John Landis very much, but he did write a good script here. Um, and it was produced by Deborah Hill. I think Deborah we Hill. A, I think we should get a yep. shout out to Deborah Hill, uh, who produced Clue. Let's give her a whole bunch of credit. All the credit. Um, she gets all the credit. And and stars uh, Tim Curry, Madeline Kahn, Christopher Lloyd, Michael McKean, Eileen Brennan, Martin Ma, Leslie Ann Warren, and Colleen Camp. Um, all of whom were again very well known at the time, and also just a great ensemble as as a for a comedy. Right? Mm -hmm. So, what are your thoughts? on Clue, Karen, as a whodunit and as uh, a film. <laughs> I love Clue so much. Um, it's such it's such a fun movie. And it's, I mean, I didn't see this in the theater when it first came out. We definitely saw this like on TV a couple of years later. And then it just became a staple at our house. We would watch it a lot. And I mean, we were obsessed with the, the board game. Sorry, uh, Benoit Blanc, but I love Clue. And, um, and so this was just, it was like, it was fun because it put faces and personalities to these characters that we had kind of, kind of invented personalities for as we would play the game. Um, but, uh, but watching the movie and like the cast is so, so great. I mean, yeah, you just read off all these amazing people and 
every one of them is just so perfect and they're so funny they play off of each other so well and the way that the mysteries developed and then the way that we see the um the solution is 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 just really smart because um it is definitely kind of a parody of this genre but it actually really is a very good entry into the genre as well yeah and and i again that this whole trope of we're gonna so it, it's very much to call back to and then there were none we're gonna gather a whole bunch of people at this isolated house none of whom know each other none of whom know each other they all have a reason for wanting the eventual um the eventual victim dead and and those reasons are revealed and then developed even more as as the film goes on and and one of the things i like about this also is that the film is set in the 1950s Mm-hmm. And so it is very much in dialogue with films like And Then There Were None. Right. Um, and, and other of those kind of old dark house mysteries, even stuff like House on Haunted Hill, uh, where you have this, this group of people, you know, together. And then it's, you know, it's revealed one of them is an FBI agent or one of them sold secrets to the Russians. One of them uh, um, has a wife who's had friends who are communists. <laughs> um, all of that, but it's played for laughs, obviously. It's played as like, this is silly, but this is also, but these characters also take it seriously. Um, and yeah, and then of course the, the way that they use the game. So, you know, Colonel Mustard in the library with the wrench, uh, Mrs. White in the, in the conservatory with the rope, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it, they play with it really well, but it, it's, it's so that you could, hit, you could watch this movie never having played Clue and have a great time with it. It would not like be, it, it, it wouldn't make you feel like I, that you're missing something particularly, but if you've played Clue and you know all of these silly little little elements, it's even more fun in a lot of ways. Yeah, it is. Well, because first of all, you're in the library, you're in the drawing room or whatever. Um, so there's that. But then also when they get the gifts and each one is given a yeah. gift that is one of the weapons from the game and and so it's like oh who got the rope who got the candlestick you know it's, well and it uh, it also feeds into the film because the gun goes off and then someone you know mr body gets hit with a blunt instrument like who hit him with the instrument where'd the candlestick go all of that mm-hmm. stuff um so it actually uses those those silly like little you know in the game little plastic things um, that then become real and and are actually actually feed into into the solution of the mystery, right? And um, then they develop all the all the fun like um, setting stuff that makes this so so um, such a fun genre too. Like it's a pouring rain outside yeah. and the phones go out and random people stop at the house and they have to like figure out what to do with this cop, you know, and um, yeah. Yeah, it's it's a farce, you know, and and, mm-hmm. and again, bodies pile up. So it isn't just Mr. Body that gets killed. <laughs> the cook gets killed. There's a uh, a motorist dies. The cop dies. singing telegram, singing telegram girl, <laughs> and it gets increasingly silly. That's that's mm-hmm. part of it. It's just like so. Initially, Mr. Body is dead, and it's like okay, well, there's the body who killed him. Right. Um, uh, you know, who did it? How was it done? And we know where it happened, but did it happen there? <laughs> but it also turns out that all these quote unquote random people 
all had a reason for being there too because like why would a singing telegram show up in the middle of the night at some strange house in a rainstorm well it turns out that that was someone that professor plum was having an affair with you know um and it's all these these things that are kind of putting more pressure on the the people in the house Mm -hmm. because it's like they they see people that they know um uh in the case of miss scarlet she's a madam and so it turns out that the maid worked for her at one point Mm -hmm. and um so it's like they see people but they can't give away that they know who this person is and um yeah and it it builds Mm -hmm. uh and and we get all of these different elements that get that get revealed and it be and as i say it becomes sillier and sillier but in a lot of ways you know one of the things i like about this is that you can read this as a as a spoof right of the whodunit genre but it's very loving it's very yeah. like it isn't like these are bad stories or this is a stupid genre it's this is these this genre is a lot of fun and part of the fun of it is you know all of these different characters and everybody having a motive and concealed motives and all of that stuff and trying to figure out who did it um and and as the story goes on and you get more and more revealed about these characters and it gets sillier and sillier there's never a sense that it's making fun of the genre itself right right um at, at the very least you know my i think it's making fun of 1950s films a little, a little bit um and and like the red scare and you know she she was she had friends who are communists <laughs> <gasps> uh, yeah and I do do so. Let's let's talk for a minute about Tim Curry, who plays Wadsworth, who is not a character in Clue, um, unless I have played a different version of Clue than has existed <laughs> all of this time. But it means that he kind of acts as the detective, right? But he's also a suspect, um, and and he is the one around which the entire film kind of works. Mm-hmm. And I do have to say, the last twenty minutes of of Clue are entirely dependent on Tim Curry's willingness to run and talk <laughs> and shout like mm-hmm. from room to room explaining everything that happens it's a very it's actually a very well choreographed film it is um, yeah and i think i think again relying also on all of these these actors who are very good comedians yes yeah they're very good comedians they're totally game for for this movie and they're i mean that's the thing that makes this work i think is the fact that they are all they're all taking their roles seriously they're not turning them into jokes but they're also totally having fun and tim curry is having the most fun out of everybody like he's just reveling in this and it's awesome yeah um and and so the the film does have three endings, which on the home video release and on the, the DVD release, et cetera, are usually appended to to the entirety of the film. In initial theatrical release, different theaters showed different endings, <laughs> um, which I did not know. But I all I, I really enjoy the fact that you could have gone to see a movie and see one ending, and then see it at a different theater and see another ending. Or like you're seeing the movie, your friend saw the movie, you went to different theaters, you're talking about it, and you're like, wait, but that's not what happened. Yeah, it is. No, that's not what happened. Yeah. <laughs> And amazingly enough, this film did not do well when it first came out in, yeah. in uh, 1985. It's yep. uh, yeah, it was a it was a theatrical flop, uh, and and it kind of mixed reviews. And 
I, I reading some of the quotes from critics just like are you just stupid like are you just not <laughs> just not like fun yeah well and that's the thing is like this movie this I mean I never saw it in the theater like I said um but this really did take on new life once it hit home video everyone started watching it everyone started re-watching it it was on tv a lot it just mm-hmm. became this movie that um really that's where it it kind of found its its niche it wasn't one that for some reason and it's like you look at this cast and these aren't just all beloved people from from yesteryear or whatever like these were all yeah. big stars and i mean christopher lloyd was in back to the future that year too you know and tim curry was yeah so i mean like these were big big stars that everyone loved and yet it still wasn't i don't know this probably was bad marketing or something and then the maybe it was the confusion over the endings or something i don't know but um but it we see this sometimes where movies just don't do well in the theater and then they just explode on streaming yeah and this was one of those yeah this this has become very much a camp classic like i say i don't know anyone of my generation who has not seen it yeah um or doesn't at least know of it and i and this film came out a year before i was born so this this has like had long legs this is something my, like my parents showed to me because i because like you i loved playing clue mm-hmm. um and i i was always mr green because my favorite color is green um and I was really happy at the end of this movie when I found out that Mr. Green didn't do it (laughs) and in fact I think it is the only one who didn't do it Mm -hmm. I think so (laughs) but it's I but again leaning into that that humor of this of this genre which the whodunit you know contributes so much to humor because it is silly it is a puzzle it's a game right it's something that's fun at some level and it can come off as serious. It can come off as creepy, but it at, underneath all of it is is an element of silliness and an element of humor that I think all of the best kinds of whodunits um, really recognize and enjoy and participate in. Yeah, well, and that's the thing. Like overall, this genre just by nature is kind of silly because yeah. you're putting a whole bunch of people into a location together and then killing people, and that yeah. is silly or it's a holocaust like there's no in between <laughs> you know and yeah well and, and like like i say even the writers of whodunits to, th- to throw back to the 1930s and 40s began making jokes about it like there are jokes in the poirot books about like why is it that every time poirot goes on holiday someone <laughs> dies yeah. like poor poirot at one point you know he he retires mm-hmm. and goes to live in the countryside there's a murder next door yeah and he's like, why is this happening to me? <laughs> um, but, but yeah, you get the same thing with Miss Marvel books. So even the, the original, you know, golden age whodunits of, of yesteryear were making jokes about the fact that this is silly. This, this does not happen in real life, but it is a way to have fun and to play a game and also to explore the psychologies of these characters. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And in so many of these movies it's also a really fun way to put a whole bunch of famous people in one movie together yeah and i think that that's that's something again that clue really leans into the last of Sheila leans into in fact all of the films that we've talked about so far is mm-hmm. put a, a lot of well-known actors well-known faces famous people into a space um that and we're even like take even if you don't know the story you're taking bets on which one of them is going to die 
Right. Yeah, exactly. So, and I mean, these aren't, these three aren't the only ones and Brian Johnson, you know, like there's so many others. Another one I really enjoy is Gosford Park, which is also, um, you know, a big cast with lots of famous people in it. And, um, and that one explores issues of classism. Uh, and, and again, similar to, you know, one of the criticisms that uh, has been made of the golden age of detective fiction is the amount of classism and racism and sexism and all of those isms um, that are contained in these. And, and sometimes you read some Agatha Christie books, not just, and then there were none, which has its own problems, but, um, but, you know, there are comments about, about Jewish people and Italians are apparently another race. Like it's, Mm -hmm. it's, you, you come across these things. You're like, this is really, this is really racist. This is really sexist. And then you get um, films that actually address that right. and say like, you know, we can take the good things of the genre and we can maybe talk about the, the, the crap that is going on underneath it. Gosford Park is very much about class and, mm-hmm. um, and justifiable murder. Cause right. that's, that's one where the, the victim, you're just like, Oh, thank Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Definitely. Um, we did have a question from Estefania uh, in relation to Clue. What movie would you have liked to see with multiple endings like Clue? Um, I would have loved to see Knives Out have multiple endings, have multiple solutions to the murder. Hmm. I think that would have been fun. I know that that's not what he was doing and I'm fine with that, but I, Brian Johnson is listening. I would love to see that at some point <laughs> in the continuing Knives Out franchise. <laughs> Yeah. Well, and and that's the thing is like, I think that there's a very strong possibility that that may happen for the next movie. Um, Probably not in the exact same way, but I could, I could definitely see that happening. So uh, for me, when I read this question, I love this question for me, it's, it's um, more like what makes that work in clue is that is the fact that everyone has um, motive and means and opportunity um, and the ability to do it. And that's why that works for me. And so I was thinking about that in terms of Knives Out and Glass Onion. It's like, ah, but not everyone would have, you know, and it, and, and also does, does who, does the solution fundamentally change the, the mystery either. And I feel like with Knives Out and Glass Onion, it would have, um, I think that with, and then there were none, it would fundamentally change the story to have a different person behind it all. Um, but I think that movies like Murder on the Orient Express, it doesn't fundamentally change it when you do know the solution to that one. Mm-hmm. And so I think having different people um, behind it would actually make a lot of sense and would be really fun. Well, and one of the interesting things about uh, about I know about Christy is that she she would literally map out her mysteries and mm-hmm. give everybody a motive and give everyone motive means opportunity. Yeah. Um, and then basically choose what <laughs> the solution was. So a lot of, of her, of her books, there are multiple solutions in the sense that there are multiple people who could have done it. Right. Um, but the solution is this, this one person did it. Yeah. But for me too, just the way that I approach this question is also like, if you have a different person responsible, how does that change the overall yeah. story well and i think that that's something that um outside of a, a comedic way which is the way that that clue treated it and clue one of the brilliant things about those endings is that they all work 
Yeah. Um, and they all work. And if you watch like who is in what room when and who is present and who isn't present, um, all of the endings actually make sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so there is a little bit, again, that puzzle boxy kind of element to it where you, oh, you could keep on kind of unlayering it and it still works. Yeah. Um, uh, but but yeah, and I, I think that in a more serious way, a film could do exactly that, could explore if if this person is the killer, what does that mean for what we have seen that came that came before, right? How much more, how different do we understand and interpret um, the behavior of the characters, uh, whatever the thematics are, things like that? And I think that there there are good places to like actually deal with that. I would also kind of like to just get to the end of a film and be like, and be like, okay, so now it's over. And then, you know, Benoit Blanc or, or someone is just like, but that's not what actually happened. <laughs> yes. Which is why I really, I would not be surprised if that's what we get with the third times out movie. Yeah. You've got to be really careful with it. Uh, mm. I, I think it's one of those that could go off the rails really easily. And, um, Oh, for but, sure. But, but also, I think, I think really Ryan Johnson is smart enough that he yeah. could do it. Absolutely. So I think that that is going to probably close us out for the for this episode. Do you have yeah, any last so. last minute thoughts about whodunits? Um, any other films you want to suggest to our lovely listeners? Oh man, um, just I I love them. They're so fun. And uh, it's interesting because when you Google like best whodunits, so many of them just end up being the suggestions just end up being like mystery stories. But that's to me not what we're going for here. But I also just love um, some of the TV shows too. Like I, yeah, I love Murder She Wrote, and I'm so happy that that is like in reruns again because I missed that show so much. So. I would say if this is your genre, go watch Murder, She Wrote. Enjoy Jessica Fletcher. She's the best. Also, the the other side of the Hunadin is the How Done It. Yeah. Um, and uh, Columbo is is one of the ones that goes really hard on the How Done It. So yes, because you always know who is. did it. Yeah, you always know who did it, and it's a question of how is Columbo going to solve it. Right. Um, because very often these are very elaborate murders that, you know, people have worked out really well. Just like, okay, so how is he going to get the the killer? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's very clever. So yeah, Columbo is always good. Just in terms of the the various adaptations, there, I mean, there are thousands practically of really good Christie adaptations. Um, if you want to see a, a version of And Then There Were None that I, I think is much truer to the book, uh, in terms of tone and in terms of the exploration of um, justice and culpability. Uh, there is a very good, I believe, BBC version that was done in two parts. So it's a, it's a long, it's a longer film. Oh. It's like an hour and a half per part and um, is very creepy and like really leans hard into the Gothic and um, kind of horror aspects of the story. It's really, really well done. Uh, and I, I highly recommend it to anyone who likes Agatha Christie. Um, and yeah, the, I, I've always, I've talked about the, the Poirot, the David Suchet Poirots uh, before. In fact, it was referred, David Suchet's Poirot was referred to the other day in a TV show I was watching. I can't remember what it was. And I was like, Poirot, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, there, there are, there's some good ones. And, and like we said, I think at the beginning of all of this, um, it's, 
being able to rewatch these says what good quality they are. It's, you know, yeah. you can know the solution and still enjoy it. I can't say how many times I've seen Clue. And I love it because it's funny and it's clever. And um, and I notice, you know, you notice things as well going through, you're just like, oh yes, it's right. He wasn't there at the time. Yeah, it's so true. So yeah. I think I think that is gonna close us out for this first episode of 2023. Thank you so much for listening to us and for participating. We of course want to thank our lovely patrons who include Ali, Brian, Connor, Estefania, Heather, James, Kathleen, Cariata, Matt, Michelle, Monty, Nanina, Robert, Robert, Steve, Sharon, Pow, and Will. Thank you so much. Again, if anyone has not received buttons, et cetera, uh, that you are owed, please let us know. Um, send us a message, send us an email, post on our Patreon. Try, I've tried to get things out to people, um, but I may have missed somebody. You do need to have a US mailing address. That's the only thing. Yeah. Um, and if you want to join their number, we have our Patreon, patreon.com slash citizen dame. We're hopefully going to have some more bonus episodes up and some more little things to, to thank people for being, um, our patrons. It's just a really good way to support the podcast. And we deeply appreciate everybody who's, who's willing to do this. Um, we also have our Zazzle store, zazzle.com slash citizen dame pod and our ko-fi, ko-fi.com slash citizen dame. You can, of course, go to our website. We're citizendamepod.com. We should have some new reviews and top five lists and all sorts of fun things coming up really shortly. You can read Karen's review of Avatar, The Way of Water. <laughs> um, have fun with that. <laughs> uh, and you can, of course, send us an email. That's citizendamepod at gmail.com. And we are on all of the various social medias. We are on Twitter, Instagram, and Mastodon at Citizen Dame Pod, and we are on Letterbox at Citizen Dame. We're going to be making some updates to our Letterbox, so definitely check that out. Um, and I think that that will close us out for this week. Karen, where can people find you? I am on Twitter and Instagram and Letterboxd at Karen M. Peterson. And I am on all of the socials at LH Business. So that will close us out for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Incredible. Not so incredible as what happened next. But we all split up again. I went upstairs with you. Yes, you, Mrs. White. And while I was in the master bedroom, you hurried downstairs and turned off the electricity, got the rope from the open cupboard, and throttled Yvette. You were jealous that your husband was stopping Yvette. That's why you killed him, too. Yes. Yes, I did it. I killed Yvette. I hated her. So much, it, it, the, it flame, flames, flames on the side of my face, breathing, breath, heaving breaths.